from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Simon from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Let me get a second. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 16th. Today, rooting out extremism in the military, why Indian farmers are protesting, and who takes care of the first dogs. There has been a lot of attention around the threat of far-right extremism in the military since the January 6th Capitol riot. Missy Ryan covers the Pentagon for The Post. And it's something that has sort of been on people's radar screens, but in a low-level way for for years. There have been different moments in recent decades where there have been eruptions, incidents where troops have been found to be neo-Nazis or part of fascist organizations. And, you know, that that has produced a responses at different times from military authorities. But it's been something that has been less of a focus in recent years until the events of January 6th, when of the 190 people charged in the Capitol siege, at least 30 of them were veterans and there were three reservists or National Guard members. And that seemed like a pretty big proportion. And that really has drawn renewed attention to the issue of extremism within the military. And I know why that fact that so many of the people who participated in the riot were either current or former members of the military. Like, I understand why that makes me feel scared. But why is it so concerning to leadership in the military? Well, the idea is that the the first and uh, really only allegiance that the members of the military are supposed to have is to the institution, to the United States, and to the Constitution. And many of these groups really present a threat to good order and discipline. As military leaders would say, they present a threat to you know peers. If you're talking about a white supremacist organization in the military, they present a, a threat to people of color who are serving in the military. It also presents a threat to society at large because the military endows service members with specialized training, with access to weapons. And all of those things are of use for some of these organizations who um, at times have looked to use violence to further their political ends. So then what is the military actually doing about this? Well, it's interesting because there's been a reckoning in the last few weeks about this issue and really a lot of soul searching on the part of the military. They understand it's a problem and it's something that they need to prioritize in a way that hasn't taken place in the past. But at the same time, they really have no idea how widespread the phenomenon is in the military. They just have never been set up to track it systematically. Um, And so they're really kind of scrambling right now to understand is this a problem that affects one half of 1% of troops, you know, 2% of troops? Everybody knows that it is a relatively small problem. And certainly there are larger institutional problems such as mm. racism and discrimination and, and sexual harassment and assault. But they just have never tracked it in a way where they can be sure about that. And so what they're having to do right now is sort of start from scratch, deal with all these legal institutional challenges that have posed impediments to getting a really good hold on the scale of the problem in the military. And that's something that's going to be difficult in an organization that's as big as the U.S. military. 
And it seems like this problem is really falling on the shoulders of Lloyd Austin, the the current defense secretary, and I think worth pointing out, the first African-American defense secretary. What is he saying or how has he been reacting to the fact that this problem is becoming more public, that there are a lot of members of the military that identify with far right or extremist groups? Yeah, well, it's, it is an interesting juxtaposition. You have Lloyd Austin, who was tapped by President Biden to become the country's first African-American defense secretary. He's a retired four-star general who was the first African-American officer to occupy a number of posts as he made his way up the ranks before he retired in 2016. And now he's leading the military at a time where not only is it trying to get a handle on um, systemic racism, but it does also have this additional challenge of the the specter of far-right extremism. And he has sort of talked about it as a leadership problem. He's made references to a very gruesome incident that occurred in 1995 when he was a young officer at Fort Bragg where there was a neo-Nazi cell that was found at the base at that time. And you know, Austin said in his confirmation hearing that that was sort of a wake-up for him in that the senior leadership um, at Fort Bragg, the base in North Carolina at the time, hadn't really been able to detect this threat within its ranks. And I think that's the kind of thing that they're going to try to prevent this time. They want Mm -hmm. to be able to have the internal visibility, to have the mechanisms to detect and measure this problem. One of the things that he's doing is announcing a military-wide stand-down within the next few weeks. And what it means is that he's ordering all military commanders to take one full day to halt all their regular activities and have a conversation about extremism. It's a chance for people to air their views, talk about what they're seeing. And uh, it, it really is a sign of the high level concern about this issue. It's supposed to be every unit around the world. And the idea is that this will be funneled back into a review and will be used to help leadership really understand what is going on in a phenomenon that isn't always very visible. And so, you know, he's talking about it as a values and a leadership problem, but there's also a big management challenge. As I as I mentioned before, there are all these internal regulations and the fact that you have different military services with different rules, with different investigatory setups. It, it's going to be a very complex bureaucratic challenge to to tackle. And also there is the question of free speech, which I know is a thing that law enforcement generally is trying to figure out how to navigate. What is the line between your rights as a person to just talk about far-right ideas versus what could be a criminal offense? But I imagine that that's even more complicated when it comes to the military. Well, yeah, you know, it's it's, and we talk about the sort of systemic problems that the military leaders are going to have to tackle when they're dealing with this. First among them is the rules that exist right now, which allow service members to be members of of some of these far right organizations, or even you know an extremist or white supremacist organization, as long as they don't have active membership of that organization, hmm. and that is related to their First Amendment rights surrounding free speech and. It seems like a a strange thing. And I think that there's been a lot of congressional outcry that that continues to be the case. Yeah, frankly, that kind of blows my mind and maybe speaks to how the military is different from other types of workplaces. But the idea that you as a member of the military have have a right to be connected to a white supremacist group and yet also expected to work into your job and be armed alongside black people, I, you know, that's that's 
bonkers to me. It is it is really hard to understand. And I think you've seen that across the political spectrum. And that is, is one thing that Austin will be taking a look at when he's conducting a review of this issue in coming months. And I think you're going to see here really the political leadership of the Pentagon probing the legal limits. You know, they're going to be talking to the lawyers at the Pentagon, the lawyers at the White House. How far of a blanket ban can we um, instate for military members without challenging their First Amendment rights. And there's going to be a real tension there. And so, you know, I suspect that Austin will try to push that as far as he can with the idea that not only is it abhorrent to the values that the military espouses, but it is a threat to internal discipline and to morale among the troops who might be subject to these kind of beliefs or actions from this very small but potentially virulent minority. And I'm curious about what they see as the potential end goal here. Like, is it just to find anyone who has joined a white supremacist Facebook group and to just kick them out immediately? Or how do they how do they approach the problem of what happens to people once they are identified? Well, you know, you're getting at one of the other sort of central problems in thinking about this issue, which is how do you define extremism and what are the parameters with which you try to detect it and sort of capture people for discipline or for potential rehabilitation? And it's a it's a really difficult question because there is a whole spectrum of kinds of extremist group. There are, you know, white supremacist organizations, there are anti-government organizations. And some of these, you know, people are just in online chat rooms. They're not even doing anything in real life. But, you know, there's always the potential for that to change very quickly. And the military is trying to grapple with all of this. There have been suggestions from outside groups that the military, instead of just trying to kick people out when they are sort of pretty far down the path towards radicalization, that they try to rehabilitate them in the way that you would with some other kinds of extremism. But that's something that doesn't exist right now in a sort of formal way. And I think that that's something that will also be explored as part of Austin's treatment and review of this. And I would love to know more about what the potential consequences are if they don't deal with this problem. Because, of course, it, it, it's a threat to the internal ranks of the military and, and troops' ability to function. But I also just think it's a big PR problem for the military. We, as taxpayers, give them a ton of latitude and the ability to be armed because we expect them to protect us. And if the people who are protecting us are white supremacists, I think that really questions the fundamentals of that relationship. You know, I think that certainly there is a reputational risk that military leaders see. The military consistently has been one of the sort of uh, most admired institutions in American society. It's seen as, to a certain extent, above politics, you know, uh, people who sacrifice for you know, the ideals of patriotism. And if it's seen as infested with this kind of ideology, hateful ideology, there's certainly a risk to to that and, and then everything that comes along with that, you know, which among other things is a huge financial support from from Congress. And I think the other thing to note is that it could have a deterrent effect on recruitment and the ability to get the best people in the ranks. You know, the military is one of the most diverse institutions of government. And if there was a perception that the military leadership was tolerating this kind of 
violent and threatening ideology and behavior, there are a lot of people who wouldn't want to join the military. And I think they see that as a competition problem as well as the U.S. tries to compete against these advanced militaries, for example, China and Russia. They want to recruit and retain the best force possible. Missy Ryan covers the Pentagon for The Post. As the Department of Defense tries to get more answers on the military links to the Capitol riot, members of Congress are also hoping to understand more about what happened that day. After the Senate fell short of the votes needed to convict Donald Trump in his impeachment trial, Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that the House will move to establish an independent commission to investigate the events of January 6th. This commission could look like the one that studied the September 11th attacks. And in the same way, it could provide recommendations on how to prevent similar attacks in the future. started in September when these new farm laws were passed, but they didn't really get nationwide attention until November, which is when farmers started arriving in large numbers on their tractors outside Delhi, India's capital. Wait, can I pause you for a second? Yeah. So, so the farmers were actually riding, like they brought their tractors to yeah. the city and like riding around in the streets on the tractors? Yeah. This is Joanna Slater. She is the India bureau chief for The Post. Imagine hundreds and maybe hundreds of or thousands of tractors and their trailers blocking what used to be a Hmm. major highway. And so farmers are are living in these trailers Hmm. attached to the back of their tractors. And they were given permission for a tractor rally on January 26th. And they came into the city on their tractors and again... Most of them were peaceful in carrying out that rally, but some of them used their tractors to remove barricades and were driving them at high speed toward police personnel. And why have these farmers been protesting? These farmers have actually been protesting since September, which is when the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi passed three laws containing major changes to agricultural policy. And the main thrust of the laws is to deregulate the farm sector and make it easier for people to buy and sell anywhere they want. So in terms of what this law actually does and why farmers are so worried about it, 
Can you describe to me if I were a rice farmer in India, like how does the situation of me selling my crops change because of this law? So the main change would be as follows. If you're a rice farmer in northern India right now, usually you, let's say you're in the state of Punjab, usually you would be farming both rice and wheat depending on the time of year. And when you have your crop, you would take it to what's called a mandi, which is effectively a wholesale market. It's a government authorized market where you would sell your crops, usually working with a middleman who you've known and trusted for years. And those wholesale markets, by the way, are are where they receive these guaranteed government prices. So the main change, the one way that you can kind of think about these laws do is from now on, the Mondays, these wholesale markets, will not be the only place that people are authorized to buy agricultural goods. You can buy and sell them wherever you want. In fact, you can make your own side deals. You can set up private marketplaces. There's basically total freedom in that regard. So the farmer worry is that ultimately that will weaken the existing system and the government has been unsuccessful in persuading the farmers that this is the right course. Interesting. So if I'm a rice farmer, basically the government is telling me like, look, there's actually a lot of upside here for you that if we're bringing in uh, more of the private sector, they can offer different prices for your crops. Like you could potentially make more that this could be good for you. But I am worried about stability and I just want to know that the government is going to be able to guarantee a price for my crops going forward and make sure that it doesn't fall below a certain level. But with these new laws, it actually introduces a lot more uncertainty and takes away some of those guarantees of how much the minimum is that I could be making. Yes, I think that's basically right. The law doesn't actually take away those guarantees. In fact, the government has repeatedly said that those guarantees are not going anywhere. But certainly there is an intention to move to a system where there is more market-based risk in general in the sector. So it seems like this is a complicated situation for Prime Minister Modi and for the Indian government because they rely on these farmers politically. But I also wonder if they rely on these farmers economically, like how big a part of the Indian economy is farming. Farming remains a big portion of the Indian economy, a a significant proportion of GDP. More importantly, you still have a majority of Indians living in rural areas. So more than half of Indians is more than 650 million people. So that's a lot of people with, with connections to this sector, either directly or indirectly. The people who are protesting mostly do come from a certain geographic area, which is around Delhi, the states of Punjab, Haryana, and Uttar Pradesh. So it's hard to say with certainty what all farmers across India feel or how they feel about these laws. But certainly there is a section of farmers that is is deeply, deeply upset about these changes. And I'm also curious about what the response has been to how the government has been handling these protests and handling the protesters. 
Well, I think that has also been a source of growing controversy. (laughs) So in recent days, there were these clashes in, in late January, and in recent days, they, the authorities have taken these steps to make sure that none of the protesters enter the city. So there are fresh barricades and barbed wire, and there's even spikes in the ground to stop vehicles. They cut off internet in some areas, and they ordered Twitter to suspend certain accounts. There have been dozens of people arrested with allegations of police brutality in custody. So that is certainly contributing to broader worries about the response of this government, its heavy-handed approach to political opposition. You know, another aspect of this challenge for for the Indian government is is simply from a, a public relations perspective. They don't seem to have a good strategy for dealing with the fact that these protesters have have garnered a lot of support from outside India, and they've really successfully used existing networks to draw attention to their cause. Earlier this month, we had a dramatic illustration of that when you had Rihanna, the pop star, tweet about these protests. She shared a link of a news story talking about how the internet was cut near the protest sites uh, after these clashes, and she said, why aren't we talking more about this? So that drew a lot of attention to the protests and maybe even introduced a lot of people to the fact that these protests were were taking place. It wasn't just Rihanna, but then you had Greta Thunberg, the Swedish environmental activist, tweeting her support for the farmers, as well as Mina Harris, uh, Vice President Harris's niece. So I think this has really taken off internationally in a way that I don't think the Indian government ever anticipated having to deal with. Now, that attention is now causing some serious problems for people here in India. On Saturday, a 22-year-old climate change activist in Bangalore was arrested by the Delhi police. They're saying that she is part of a criminal conspiracy to spread disaffection against the Indian state. Uh, All she did was disseminate a list of ways to support protesting farmers in India, uh, including with, it seems, uh, Greta Thunberg. What do you think has made the protesters so successful in capturing that international attention? Like, what is their message or what are they doing that that seems to be really working? I think the farmers have really worked through existing uh, networks. Many of the protesting farmers belong to the Sikh community, and you have thriving Sikh communities in the United States, in Canada, in Britain. So I think that has really been a strength for these protesters. And, And that's why you saw, for example, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was one of the first people to express support for the right of these protesters to continue their agitation back in December because it was really very much on the radar screen in Canada uh, thanks to the, the efforts of the Sikh community there. And Joanna, you know, we've talked in the past about 
Prime Minister Modi and the fact that he is a very polarizing politician, that he has intense loyalty from so many people, but also that he has alienated a lot of people, especially religious minorities in India. And I'm wondering what you think these protests say about where he is at in his leadership right now. That's a very interesting question. I spoke to someone uh, about this and they suggested that perhaps what we're seeing with the farm protests is something that tends to emerge in uh, when someone has a second term. Modi is now a second term prime minister, a prime minister who returned with a, a thumping majority. So perhaps there's a little bit of overreach. You you think that you can do a lot of things without a lot of pushback. And, and there does seem to have been a miscalculation on his government's part. I don't believe they in any way foresaw that these laws would elicit this kind of of response. So it's a big challenge for him right now. I would say it's the biggest challenge for him right now is how to how to handle these protests. And I don't think there actually is a, a clear way forward. Joanna Slater is the India Bureau Chief for The Post. And now, one more thing. Late last week, there was this video of President Biden and the First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden, that went kind of viral. I love your dog. We live here. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Champ's an old one. He's nice Which one's the old one, President? Nothing actually exciting happens in this video. It's just this couple, and they're out walking their dogs, Major and Champ, on the lawn of the White House, just drinking coffee, chatting. Major, he's a shepherd, he's a rescue dog. And we asked the vet, what can we do to keep Champ going? He said, get him a young dog. And a lot of people online were just talking about how normal this all seemed. But it also got us wondering. Do first families actually walk their dogs every day? It really depends on the family. Bonnie Berkowitz is a graphics reporter at The Post. She talked to Post audio producer Ariel Plotnik. Some first families have been really, really hands-on. And some let other people do more of the work for their pets, like the George H.W. Bushes and the Fords were incredibly hands-on. They walked their own dogs, they bathed their own dogs, they got up in the middle of the night with the dogs. Other families have been a little less hands-on. And of course, all first families can't take care of their pets all the time. So the White House steps in for that. The chief groundskeeper has particularly been involved with White House dogs. And his name is Dale Haney. He's been at the White House since 1972 and has taken care of first dogs since the Nixon's dogs. And he has already been photographed on the South Lawn with Champ and Major. Do the dogs get any specific or special training to be White House pets? Some dogs have just run rampant through the White House and caused havoc. And others have been really, really well trained to deal with people and to deal with strangers and to deal with, you know, large groups and things like that. A lot of the White House dogs do PR. The Obama dogs did a ton of PR. Want to say hi? 
It was almost as if the first dog thought he was taking questions. Do I like living in the White House? And yes, it's fun living in the White House. All right, let's get another question. Let's get another question, Bo. Bo Obama was especially indulgent when people wanted to pet him and when, you know, when the PR staff wanted to put bunny ears on him for a promo for the White House egg roll and things like that. He was just Mr. Congeniality. He would go along with whatever. Has Biden said how involved he'd like to be with the dogs? Well, he did tell the trainer that he wanted to walk the dogs. Lots of first families have walked their dogs at various times. The Kennedys used to sneak out. I don't know if it was sneaking out, but they would go out at night so that people wouldn't just recognize them. And they would walk their dogs down Pennsylvania Avenue, arm in arm. Michelle Obama, when she had Bo and Sonny, would take them on trails near the White House. Do you think being a White House pet is like a particularly charmed existence? I think in some ways it is, but in some ways, maybe not. In some ways, it's probably, I would think it would be a lot like being a White House kid. Yeah, there are all these perks, but you also have people around you all the time and strangers wanting to talk to you and reach for you and grab for you. Pets just make a president and a first family so much more relatable because Their lives are just so different from ours in so many ways, but their dog still pees on the carpet, just like anybody else's dog. And they still have a dog that jumps up and licks their faces like any other dog. And it just, you see that and it makes them feel a little bit more like the rest of us, I think. Bonnie Berkowitz is a graphics reporter at The Post. Ariel Plotnick is a producer for Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you have not yet subscribed to The Washington Post, check out the deal that we have for our listeners. You get one year of unlimited access to everything that The Post publishes for just $29. We'll have a link in our show notes, or you can go to postreports.com offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 